Yo, hello, welcome to Herpetological Highlights, the podcast about reptile and amphibian science. I'm Tom Major, co-hosting with me as per is Ben Marshall. And we've got an episode today about pit vipers, so snakes. We're talking about snakes, we're talking about ambush predators, we're talking about how good they are at catching their prey. And then later on in the episode, we've got a brand new species, something small and spiny, give you a little taste of what's to come. But yeah, before that, we got a paper about a pretty neat little pit viper species. So yeah, it should be good. Going to Japan. Which I How's feel... How's it going, Ben? Like, we haven't done many papers on Japanese species. That's true, actually, yeah. Yeah, we don't really have cause to talk about anything Japanese that frequently. When we do, yeah, I'm trying to think. Maybe a few newly described species, perhaps, here and there. But I yeah, I guess Maybe Japan's... one of those, and maybe Japanese giant salamanders at some point. Yeah, that's true, yeah. But, but then, no, you're right, yeah, we seldom seldom have reason to come to Japan. But Japan yeah. does have some cool reptiles. Cool reptiles, and I feel like a lot of research. Yeah, and we're talking about one of those cool reptiles today. So I'll introduce the paper. It's by Kadama and Mori, 2023. How important is temperature for strike success of ectotherms? Thermal effects on predator-prey interactions of free-ranging pit vipers. Published in Ethology. So... We've got a cool study here about a neat little pit viper species, which I would say some people listening probably wouldn't have heard of. I think the sort of gloidius group is sort of slightly less well known. This Asian radiation of pit vipers from sort of the more northern parts of Asia. And um, yeah, this paper's cool because it's a study about free ranging snakes. So a lot of the time, you know, we're talking about pit vipers, we're talking about these snakes and how they're sort of... Um, ambush methods work a lot of the time it'll be under lab conditions so it'll be like yeah. captive animals yeah. being introduced to like sort of yeah not very natural circumstances and sort of having their abilities tested but this paper's cool because we're actually going out into the wilds of japan and this study was conducted using videography so basically cctv on snakes and yeah, they used radio telemetry. So radio tags inside the snakes help you find out where the snakes are. Then when you find them, you park a CCTV camera in front of them and you record what they're getting up to. But the species that we're talking about is a snake called Gloidius blomhoffii, otherwise known as the Mamushi, which is just an awesome common name. Some other common names are the Japanese moccasin or the Japanese pit viper. But yeah, it's Gloidius blomhoffii, named blomhoffii in honour of the director of the Dutch trading colony in Nagasaki, get that, from 1817 to 1824, whose name was Jan Koch Blomhoff. Nothing funny about that. Medium-sized pit viper, this one. Largest ever recorded was 91 centimetres total length. So, you know, not massive, but not tiny. And they're pretty nice looking. I mean, we associate a lot of pit vipers with being pretty difficult to see, pretty good camouflage. This one's no exception. It's got this pale background colour, uh, it can be grey, it can be sort of yellowy or tan. And then on top of that light background colour are these darker blotches. And they're usually brownish in colour, but they sort of get lighter in the middle. So it has this kind of classic pit viper look of a dark blotches on a light background. With the, and the dark blotches sort of fade to light as well. So it kind of gives the impression of, you know, like fallen leaves. And yeah. um, of course, this works to its advantage because it's an ambush predator. And it looks like your classic pit viper with the like big wide head and heat sensitive pits. And um, yeah, likes eating nice warm rodents and being a pit viper. Well, not just a venomous rodents. species. Rodents, frogs, insects, birds. It seemed, I mean, the way they were describing it in the paper it seemed like it was 
very generalist when it came to diet. Yeah, I guess um, I think because they're often found around like human habitations and stuff. These snakes are sort of common pit viper on a lot of these Japanese islands. So I think they're kind of associated with human habitation and therefore rodents for that reason. But yeah, yeah you're yeah. right. Like they are actually generalists. Or insects, you know, cockroaches and things connected to human habitation. They eat cockroaches as well. These don't eat. Do they eat cockroaches? Uh, I think that was one of the ones they uh, they mentioned. Oh, wow. Okay, that's awesome. Maybe yeah, not. I mean, Maybe they are in the same... It is a species yeah. of Glorious. Centipedes is what they mentioned. Sorry, my bad. Centipedes. Oh, that's still pretty cool, yeah. Um, you get to have centipedes. Yeah, it, it's a species of Glorious that eats the moths, isn't it? So um, it's not completely uncharacteristic yeah. for them to eat invertebrates yeah. in this group. But yeah, being venomous, they are like quite seriously medically venomous. And every year in Japan, between two and 3,000 people are bitten by mamushi. Severe bites require intensive care and approximately 10 people die every year. So, you know, the venom of the snakes is quite serious. And yeah, this paper is kind of about how wild mamushi, I'm assuming this, I think they used mamushi as the plural of mamushi here. I hope I don't sound like an idiot. I don't know. Is it mamushi or mamushis? There's a question for you, Ben. I don't know. I don't know. I would err on the side of not adding an S to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm going to stick with mamushi as the plural of mamushi. But yeah, essentially the authors of this paper, there's this like idea that, and you know, to a large extent, you know, temperature is very important for exotherms, you know, cold-blooded animals, especially snakes. But there tends to be this theory that at colder temperatures, snakes will be less effective at hunting their prey. However, there was a paper in 2017 about rattlesnakes, and that suggested that actually wild rattlesnakes one particular species of rattlesnake were actually perfectly capable of hunting when it was cold and could effectively ambush and consume their prey, even when it was actually quite cold outside, outside what, you know, you'd consider to be their good operating temperatures. So, um, yeah, the authors of this paper saw that study and they thought, hey, let's check it out with this mamushi and um, see whether or not their sort of prey capture is affected by a bunch of different stuff by actually recording, I think it was 11 different snakes lots and lots of times and hoping that they would encounter things that they yeah. would try and attack. It was three males, 11 females, so 14 snakes in total. Right on. And each one was used multiple times, right? They were sort of yes. filming them and getting as many as many prey captures as they could. Yeah, 54 prey, snake prey encounters is what they had recorded, most of which were usable you know, for the analysis, most of which. Yeah, and it was only back a couple of episodes we were talking about how difficult it is to get those kinds of observations. Yeah. You know, if you're like, if you're hoping to see a snake eat by chance just like forget it i mean you know i was radio tracking escalapian snakes every day for like two periods of six months yep. and i never once saw one eating anything so it's pretty uncommon to actually get a chance to see that well this is you're bringing up the radio telemetry stuff that's how they track these snakes down they did implant radio transmitters you follow the snake you find it when it's in this is again the advantage of picking a pit viper over say an escalapian escalapian you'd have to follow them around all day to see what they're eating pit viper you track them down when they're settled down in a little ambush position you set up a camera and the really neat bit of this is they set up so they've got heat uh sensitive transmitters in them so the hotter the snake is the faster the radio signal is emitted so faster beeps equals hotter snakes fewer beeps colder snakes and they set up the cameras looking at the snake found it through the radio transmitter, then put a radio receiver on the camera that would audibly put out the beeps. So the beeps are recorded in the video alongside the footage. So they have a live 
you know, you've, you've basically got this recorded live stream of snake activity and snake temperature all in one, which is genius. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, so they were basically reviewing all this video and looking to see when the snakes encountered prey. And um, they use a distance of 15 centimeters. So if an animal which the snake could eat comes within 15 centimeters of the snake, that's classed as an encounter. And they had some quite good stats for what happened when these encounters occurred. 46% of encounters resulted in the snake trying to strike at the prey. Eight of 25 strikes appeared to result in a success. So a strike success rate of 32% across all these snakes. Which, and um, one 32%, doesn't sound great. No, but it's also not that terrible. I mean, the thing is, is that they could have been waiting for a long time for that strike to come. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Is it how, like, is 30% actually that brilliant? If you have to wait, you know, the amount of time between opportunities is huge. 32% doesn't sound that great. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Remember the other day when we were, a few weeks ago now, we were talking about whether snakes can become irritated. <laughs> I wonder if there's like a disappointment. <laughs> and they get sort of clumsier and more irritated the more s- sort of yeah. sequential misses, misses they have. How would you measure snake disappointment? Like how long it takes to reset and try again after it misses a yeah, strike? Yeah, fidgetiness post-strike. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, 32%. It is what it is. And um, one thing that was quite cool is that they behave differently depending on what they struck. So when they did actually hit with the strike, you know, they're injecting venom into the prey... Mammals got released, so they would strike and then release. Whereas when they bit a frog, they would just hang on. And um, that probably reflects the difference in the danger that those two different animals pose. Yes. Like if you've bitten a frog, I mean, frogs, you know, bullfrogs are not harmless, but generally a small frog, it doesn't really have much in the way of defense mechanisms. It, they generally don't have powerful bites or, right. you know, anything like that. Well, they, they just, don't if they have... can't hop away. The, let's say you do bite a frog. Most places you're biting a frog, it's not going to have the ability to turn and bite you because they don't have that same sort of flexibility in, in their back compared to, say, like a long rat. Yeah, a rat can turn around, get you straight yeah. away. And also, yeah, those horrible um, rodent teeth you just don't want to tangle with. Snakes know that, so they let go of the mammals. And what they'll do is um, they'll just follow the scent trail and then find them later on once they've hopefully succumbed to the venom. They had, a, is, uh, they had a specific term for that, didn't they? They had a... Oh. A term for when the snakes are, like, following the scent. Yeah. They abbreviated it to six. S-I-C. It is strike-induced chemosensory searching is the abbreviation oh, yeah, they it's were like, using. It's that... It's a... Uh, what do you call it? When an animal can't really control what it's doing, it's just like going in going through the motions uh involuntary i guess <laughs> yeah no not involuntary um oh it's the same as what you call like pacing in a zoo stereotypical right stereotypical ah. once they've done the strike they initiate the chemosensory searching behavior it's like it's like a switch gets flicked and they're like let's go and then they're just like yeah yeah they do the same thing every time wasn't there some didn't we cover a study that was looking at there was a specific aspect of the venom that was does helping helping them sniff it out helping them sniff it out yeah yeah i can't remember what the species was that was doing that no i think it might have been a rattlesnake yeah, yeah, they were experimenting, weren't they? They isolated that part of the venom and they showed that they could still follow it. Yes. 
better, something along those lines. But yeah, pretty cool. And I mean, you know, there's every reason to suspect that Mamushi have a similar... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. ...element to the Venom, which is helping them follow it. But yeah, you know, the crucial thing, which is what they were interested to find out, which is kind of the crux of this paper, was whether temperature had an impact on whether the snakes were successful when they actually took a strike at a prey item. And curiously, it didn't seem to really matter, did it? It was... um, The snakes didn't seem to have statistically significant effect of the temperature when trying to catch their prey, which is um, quite telling. And the temperature didn't seem to affect the likelihood of strike initiation either. So it wasn't, it's both success and probability of even starting don't seem to be connected to temperature. Well, why wouldn't you start if it won't matter? You just go for it, eh? Right? I mean, it it would (laughs) make sense if they're both sort of tied together. If they weren't tied together, you'd have this weird thing of, Maybe in cold <laughs> temperatures, they sort of pick their opportunities better or something along those lines, or, or they only go for the ones that are like absolutely guaranteed hits because they know that they don't have the capacity to, to get out of it as well or something like that. You did see the only thing that I remember seeing that was predicting initiation was they tended to go for prey that were closer to them further away or closer to that 15 centimeter maximum. So the closer yeah. you get to the snake, the more likely it's going to get you or try and get you. Yeah, there's all these calculations, aren't there? I mean, I don't know. Yeah, the snake must be making them. There's a distance where it's most likely to succeed. And it's this trade-off between like the patience to wait for things to get yes. closer and just the like the cost of missing. Because what if it yeah. doesn't quite go, you know, it's coming closer, 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 it's six centimetres, five centimetres. Do you take the five centimetre or do you think, well, maybe it'll get to four centimetres? Because the closer it is, the more likely the... Uh, the strike is going to be successful. Yeah, probably up to a point. Yeah, no, probably actually generally. I would think that closer the better, really, even. Yeah, well, that's what they were saying. So they were saying hit strikes tended to be 5 to 10 centimetres, whereas those of missed were 5 to 15. And the mean is about a centimetre up for the misses. If you're a little prey animal, what are you doing within 5 centimetres of a pit viper? Sort it out. Living a lovely, blissfully ignorant life. That's what. Yeah, just <laughs> just getting some seeds. So yeah, the only factor that seemed to actually influence whether the strikes were successful that they could sort of measure was this uh, prey dodging. So if the animal tried to dodge, that was usually enough to actually dodge the strike. Yeah. But obviously, you're only dodging if you spotted the snake early enough. So really, uh, I think it's... Um, it's kind of down to whether or not the actual prey animal spots the snake in time. Yeah, that is worth saying. Like does. I was saying about the distances, they weren't statistically significant. So there is that difference right. of a centimetre, but there's so much overlap over them, it, it didn't seem to be making a, a serious difference. So we've got this situation where the Mamushis can pre- perform these strikes, even at temperatures you'd think would be suboptimal. And the authors kind of were thinking about why that might be. And these are pit vipers, right? And so the kind of current theory... Just, sorry, just to give some context on the numbers, down to 16 degrees was down to the lowest degrees. temperature hit. The highest temperature hit was uh, 25.8. The lowest temperature miss was 13.4. The highest temperature miss was 24.9. So a huge overlap mm. is, is the point. But like we're talking low teens to mid-20s is what this study was conducted over. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's worth saying that there will be a point where the snake's like frozen and it can't do anything. I think <laughs> yeah, but know, then it's, then it's got enough. other worries on its mind. <laughs> yeah, so like there will be a temperature also, which I don't know how cold it would be where they can't really strike effectively. You know, otherwise, well, I assume so anyway. I mean, they hibernate these animals, so perhaps also digestion becomes trickier when it gets cold. But I'm, I would be surprised if a hunting 
ability didn't drop when they're at like three degrees. But, you know, never say never. But yeah, they wanted to sort of, they in the discussion, they kind of talk about why this might be the case, that they are okay at striking at this sort of wide range of temperatures. And um, they make the point that they're pit vipers. And so the kind of current theory is that pit vipers, because the signals from the heat sensitive pits enter the brain, I can't remember whether they go through the optic nerve, they connect to it somehow. But basically they think that the pit vipers are kind of seeing this heat sensitive image overlaid on their vision or either that was like an aside to their vision. Yeah. It's hard to sort of, we can't really um It's hard to perceive something that's sort of fundamentally yeah. unperceivable because it's a sense that yeah. we don't have. Yeah, <laughs> It's fundamentally unperceivable. But yeah, so we can't. But yeah, the, the idea is that actually this, that overlaying of the image wouldn't really be affected by temperature because it's like, if anything, there could be a more extreme difference between the prey and the background especially if it's a warm-blooded prey yes you know, it's rolling around at 30 degrees yes and um yeah you're looking for contrast three. to be able to determine where your prey is in relation to things you don't want to hit yeah exactly so yeah maybe that not that affected and obviously they can still strike fine which makes sense you know this is a, an animal which is living in a sort of temperate climate i suppose yeah I would um, say. yeah 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 and if you're living in a temperate climate and you can't strike when it's slightly cold what are you doing i think it's probably you know, we've talked about how infrequent these encounters with prey probably are. If yep. you can't do it when it's a bit chilly, you're probably not going to survive. So it's probably quite a, so- a strong selection pressure. Well, or you're like really constrained in your active period during the year, right? Like if you are that sensitive to temperature, you're going to be restricted to several months of a year in some parts of Japan for being active and being able to forage. So that's it's going to be difficult. Yeah. Some snakes can have a sort of week or two in the year where they eat and not eat the rest of the time, but it's better if you can eat more or give yourself more opportunity. Yes. So, you know, yeah, contrary to what you might expect, heat didn't seem to have that big of an impact on these mamushi and their sort of um, success in striking and actually catching animals. Oh, yeah. On the subject of the thermal imaging, there was that paper on another species of Gloidius, Gloidius shadowensis. And that was the paper which showed, I think we did it on the podcast, where they showed that the snakes were selecting places where they could ambush and what they could see had a low background temperature. So they were sort of deliberately sitting in places where the background was cold so that they could better see the warm prey going past. There's actually like scientific evidence for that, which is pretty awesome. You know, the snakes are thinking about a lot of stuff. Which makes sense. You've got this sense and you're trying to maximize it in an environment that's very variable. When the sort of like tolerances for hit and miss are like 0.2 of a second or less, you're going to have to maximize every little aspect of it as best you can. So it tallies up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on, shall we, to our species of the bye week. Okay, we've got a paper by Lawson Loder, Lyakurva, Lipke, 2023. Diversification of spiny-throated reed frogs with the description of a new range-restricted species from the Ukaguru Mountains, Tanzania, published in PLOS One. So yeah, we're talking about the East African spiny-throated reed frog, reed frog complex. <laughs> Quite a mouthful. And... Uh, I'll be completely honest, I'd never heard of these frogs. Had you heard of these frogs before? No, I had not heard of these frogs. (laughs) 
Thank you for your honesty, Ben. Yeah, this is a group of frogs that are famous for their throat spines. Don't get overexcited, though, because they're quite small and insignificant. Maybe it's something you can feel more than see, but the throat spines, not exactly what you'd call impressive. But that's what they've named this whole group of frogs after. So there you go. But yeah, we're in Tanzania in East Africa for this paper, this new species that's being described. Tanzania, of course, famous for its sky islands. And uh, this complex of frogs is from sort of um, Tanzania and then like spreading south down into Mozambique. And uh, I think there's one species in Malawi or on the sort of border between Mozambique and Malawi. But yeah quite a few different species and essentially quite recently there was a discovery in Tanzania of what was described as a golden hued frog from the Ukaguri mountains there and yeah this is the paper describing it as a brand new species what have they called it they've called it Hyperolius Hyperolius Ukaguruensis Ukaguruensis Hyperolius Ukaguruensis and it's named after the forest mountain block, which is the Ukaguru Mountains, where the type series was collected. So, yeah, that's where this species is from. And it's actually only known from one locality, so it's a pretty accurate name. It really is only known from this one small area in the Ukaguru Mountains in a kind of swampy environment at the edge of a montane forest. So it's not like in the actual sort of forest patch. It's like at the edge of it in a swamp. And there is a picture of the locality where these frogs were connected, collected. Looks quite nice, quite a classic swamp vibe, really. Yeah, it looks lovely. Looks prime nice frog location, if you ask me. Very lush. Yeah. yeah, very lush. The picture is really nicely framed, so credit to the authors. And that little bit of interest from that fallen log. <laughs> yeah, it's really... It's <laughs> Compliments on the, the composition. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really putting me in the swamp. But yeah, so what is this frog... What does this frog look like? It's quite small. It looks yeah, small. How two to three it? centimetres. With oh, it is the uh, females being up to three centimetres, males being up to two. So males smaller, females bigger, more eggs. And yeah, they're quite nice looking really. Yeah, they were described as golden hued and they are sort of golden broadly. They've got like quite nice orange feet. There's sort of a goldy green with a... yeah lighter yellowy white stripe down the side, which is kind of broken and like pink legs. They're just quite a cool little frog. And they do have the spines on the throat. You know, it kind of looks like maybe the frog's just getting its first stubble. Yes. But nothing to write home about. If anyone's actually touched one of these on the chinny chin chin and knows what it feels like, <laughs> I'd be interested to hear because maybe it's more spiny than it looks. But yeah. But yeah, they end this paper talking about, unfortunately, high conservation concern. You know, this is a little fragment on the top of some mountains. You know, it's vulnerable. There's been fires. Um other sort of habitat loss from people as well but it's that classic sort of small locality high human pressure sort of surrounding a forest reserve that needs better protection sort of thing is what it sounds like yeah 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 but yeah part of it's in a reserve so that's good and the authors talk about how there's probably going to be more of these species described because there's a bunch of forest fragments which are sort of sufficiently separated that they'd expect to see other species that haven't been surveyed yet so yeah it could be the case that this group has more frogs to be described hyperolius being the genus so yeah i don't know have you got anything else about the uh does that have a common name not that they state in the paper but i'm assuming it's going to be this sort of something something reed frog ukaguru mountain spiny threaded reed frog surely yeah yeah that 
is a very long name, but also gets you right to the point, doesn't it? So <laughs> they don't. Yeah, it's more like they don't make a noise though. No noise. No noise. Hmm. They have no advertisement calls, and it seems that they might not call. Strange. Maybe they do some other stuff to get each other's attention. Yeah, they might do cute little waves. The That's waves, a classic for that, frogs, isn't it? A bit of that chin inflation. Oh, yeah, with the spines? Very good. Yeah. Well, maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Why do they use the spines? But yeah, anyway, I think that's just about it for the uh, new species of spiny throated reed frog and our episode about the mamushi. Have you got any other business, Ben, for this week? Uh, not really. No. 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 Well, I have just got one piece of other business and that is to give a shout out to our newest patron rich so thanks very much rich yeah, thank you welcome aboard and um if anyone else wants to become our patreon you can at patreon.com slash highlights if you want to get in touch with us to ask a question or if you have a correction for us or if you've got something coming out which is cool let us know highlights at gmail.com you can also find us on social media and yeah i think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening thanks for listening